Talk, Season 5 of the Telly Award-winning podcast. Loving you like Joni loves Chachi. Like a fat kid loves cake. Like Bob Ross loves happy little trees. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Van Jackson, no Shang Origins. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... David Avalone, writer, comic book guy, TV writer, and uh, at, and featured on this elegant woodcut from oh, Revenge wow. of. Wow, nice! Yeah. I did that this. Is... Uh, I, I did a local event, which is where I met Tim, and we'll get to that in a minute. And they had created beautiful etched wooden uh, placards for our booths, which was very, very that's above and beyond. That's pretty fancy. It beats the um, you know beats the standard Comic Con cardboard foldy right? thing um, right is it yeah, crazy no. that i still collect those i think i i have all of them that i've ever had in front of me which is now getting to be a ridiculous pile yeah i can't uh i i, I can't bring myself to throw one out it's weird i feel like um i feel like it's bad luck or something like that you know i have um, once i had a, a quote-unquote fan come up to me afterwards and say could you sign that and give it to me yeah and i said sure absolutely great use of it yeah my my daughter uh found them incredible for a minute and um mm -hmm. you know now she has a couple of them like crammed in a drawer somewhere nice. and they'll get they'll get thrown out sooner rather than later but um i guess before we uh before we get too far down the line i should say if you missed any of our previous conversations episodes featuring comic luminaries like david f walker matt fraction stan sakai kevin eastman rodney barnes and many many more our entire catalog can be celebrated via uh, apple pods uh youtube uh, other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack wherever you get it uh, double on back and check it all out. Uh, great show for you today, but we should plug a couple of things. What do you got for us this week? Evelyn? I don't, I don't have anything new going on, uh, except, you know, seasonal depression, like everybody else. Um, I have a book coming out in February, which is Elvira meets HB Lovecraft. And if anyone is curious, Oh, yes, we'll be talking about what a horrible person he was. And uh, looks like April 3rd, Image will be releasing the first issue of Drawing Blood, which is my co-creation with Kevin Eastman with art by Ben Bishop and Troy Little. And, uh, yeah, those are the two biggest things on the horizon for me. How about you? That's big stuff. Uh, and I, I should just say, I guess, before I go, that um, I think our listeners... Our, uh, our viewer should keep an eye on this Kevin Eastman kid. Uh, I think he's going to be something. <laughs> yeah, he's going places, that yeah, guy. Yeah, he's going places. It was good of you, you know, to use your influence to kind of shine a spotlight on this little known. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you uh, you have that goodness in your heart, which is. Uh, yeah, yeah, I gave the kid yeah. a break. It you was know. good. It was good of you. Um, yeah, yeah it, it was funny. You know, I, I when we were sitting here and I was thinking about, okay, what do I have to plug and and, and what do I have to talk about uh, uh, before we get going? Um, I remember, I think it was the, I think it was the last show, maybe, maybe it was two shows ago, where, you know, I was talking about uh, uh, the jump went out as a piece of IP, uh, you know, to Hollywood, and and thankfully we have some interest and and whatnot. And um, and there was this question, though, like, I don't know how much is going to happen before the end of the year, because Hollywood tends to shut down between Thanksgiving and really Sundance in February. But um, but at least the, the final two months of the year. And and you said very confidently, yeah, but they haven't had any business for like six months. So, like, I can't imagine that these guys are going to go to sleep uh, uh, between, you know, uh, November and, and January. Like, you know, they got to 
it's deader than fucking fried chicken out there right now. <laughs> it is so bad. Um, so yeah, so Hollywood is, uh, you know, um, got some calls and some meetings, but it is, uh, it is a tough go. Uh, mm -hmm. I think for, for, you know, for most of us, hopefully, uh, you know, some of our listeners out there are getting some traction on stuff, but, um, otherwise I'm, I'm holding on until January. Uh, speaking of January, if you're listening to this in January, um, the, uh, uh, the launch page for, uh, my next personal Kickstarter, uh, the, the next installment of Peacekeepers, which is my Fargo West crime drama. Uh, it, it is up. It'll be up in early January. So watch that. Get ready for it. And uh, if you are listening uh, right now, if you're listening on release week, uh, you can pop over to Kickstarter and get the um, uh, the second issue of uh, my Wuxia Kung Fu epic uh, Fashing Origins as part of the Immortal Studios Kickstarter. So uh, that's a great one. Great little period piece. So jump on over and get that. But uh, we're talking too much. Let's get our guests yes. on. He's a lot more interesting than we are. Welcome aboard, Tim Sheridan. Hi. <laughs> oh, wow. What a rousing round of applause. Can I just say, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that you didn't like scream like a banshee uh, when you introduced me the way you did at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, okay. the, the energy drop between Island yeah. <laughs> and David was unreal. Like, I've never yeah, seen yeah. it. Like, you're yeah. really, you're dead weight, David. Like, oh yeah. Just, well, yeah. no. Here's the thing. It's all about pacing. You know, uh, yeah, you can't have explosion, explosion, explosion. You do explosion, quiet. Interesting. Con mm -hmm. Drama is contrast, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I am here I, to provide the low I, energy contrast. Yeah, I I, 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 I ran cross country uh, in high school to get just in shape now. For, oh, okay. Uh, to, get, to get to get in shape for wrestling. And uh, it wasn't really a distance runner, but did it anyway. And there was this guy, Josh Gillingham, on our team who mm. sprinted the first hundred meters of every cross country race, like it was, you know, like he was in the Olympics. <laughs> um, and he would die at about 100, 120 meters, and he would come in last place in every cross country uh, thing. So I feel like at, maybe at I'm the Josh just, Gillingham of podcasting. But at what point <laughs> you just pass out in the middle? Like, is that what happens? Like, it's yeah, I, I, yeah, I think he would often not finish races. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but but it kind of messed everybody up. People would be like, oh, wow, look at this guy. I got to keep up. And then they're my favorite thing about the story is that he did not learn. Yeah, he just he did I love it every stories time. about human beings not like repeating the same experiment 20 yeah. times and going, huh, that's weird. I always pass out at the end of these things and come in last. Now yeah. I won't change anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why change? Won that first 100 meters every time, you know? Yeah. If, if only they had medals for that. So, I wasn't so much Tim, of tell, a... the, tell the kids oh, at home a little oh. bit about yourself. Hi, uh, I'm Tim Sheridan. I'm a writer, a screenwriter, and comic book writer, and television writer. Um, and a nice. nerd. Sure. I never would have guessed from the uh, the action figure display. <laughs> idea. Yeah, I got some Transformers back there. Doctor nice. Who behind me. Nice. This, I, is, I, I didn't... this is just like the tiniest. Like my entire well, sure. office is, yeah. is lined with these things. Yeah. That is the... And the bins. The I'm many. The... Oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, I'm in the yeah. same boat also. So, so many. Yeah, so, so many. Mine doesn't, my action out. figures aren't quite uh, as prominently displayed. Yeah, but my place is a little more uh, my 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 place is a little more Adams Family home than mm -hmm. a comic book store. It's mm -hmm. just a slightly, mm -hmm. it's a little more. We've got my wife's cabinet of curiosities. There's some things, but uh, so Tim and I we met uh, at the the aforementioned Revenge of, uh, and I think Tim, you said hello because you saw 
that I had the Elvira stuff. Yeah. And we bonded over the fact that we had both written Elvira. Tim wrote Elvira for Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me tell you. So what happened was <clears throat> my best friend is a guy named Teddy Biaselli. And uh, he is, uh, he works at Great name. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, he uh, started working with uh, Cassandra, Cassandra Peterson, who, you know, mm-hmm. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, as people who I think listen to this podcast would, should know by now. Uh, he was working with her on, I think it was on when they did the reality competition show, the search for the next Elvira or something. Yes. They needed somebody to help like write bumpers or something for it. And he, he got uh, a, a mutual friend of ours was a executive on the show who knew that Teddy was a lifelong Elvira fan and it was a great writer and could, could get her voice perfectly. And he came in and he did, maybe I'm telling the story wrong, by the way, I can't, I hope that I am because it'll be so great and apocryphal, but um, he came in and they were just like, she, you know, they took to each other so quickly that he ended up shortly thereafter writing and producing the new uh, movie macabre series that she did. Right. To the two of them together, they became thick as thieves. And then, uh, then came along uh, the opportunity to uh, to bring her show back after a long hiatus to Knott's Scary Farm, the theme park, Knott's Berry Farm here in Southern California, uh, which she had done for a while, but I don't think had done since 2001 or something like that. And, uh, and he was, you know, he's a busy executive with a day job. But uh, he uh, called me in and said, hey, let's do this together. And we we wrote her show that uh, where she came back to mm-hmm. uh, to Knott's. And we had the best right. time. I just absolutely loved, loved working with her, loved meeting yeah, her. Yeah, she, she, is, she is delightful. And it's a funny thing, you know, you think about that she could make money doing TV shows and she can make money mm-hmm. doing other things. But having done a deep dive on her autobiography recently, mm-hmm. uh the thing that you really never can walk get away from with her is she is a showgirl. And as much as she likes the money with other things and the creative work with other things and the exposure of other things, there is a part of her soul. I think this is just my own. We're like coming out on a stage with a live audience mm-hmm. and wowing them from a stage. Like her first idol was Anne Margaret. And I, you yeah. know, yeah. I think, you know, the world is full of people who are like, I want to grow up to be X, Y, or Z. I think she nailed the being Anne Margaret of it all. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, she yeah. did it with a very predictable, uh, specific brand, the horror brand, but that I want to be this yeah, but- magnetic, sexy stage performer who can dance and sing and be funny and all it's of that. Funny. That's the thing. She's yeah. so funny. She's yeah. so funny. She's such... Uh, like a vaudevillian at heart, yeah. you know, she's, yeah, that's so... what I'm talking about. It's that, yeah. cause there's that, the, that thing that like, no matter how much money you make sitting on a set or writing or whatever, it's like the thing of stepping out in front of an audience is just its own thing. And if you, if you love that and you know, that was her, she was a showgirl in Vegas at 17, you know, had her own rock bands in Europe at 19, you know, so before anything else, uh she was a she was a stage performer and that i can see why 
she sort of it's it's hard for her to get away from wanting to do that. But yeah. uh, I did want to say that when I mentioned to her that we had met, she said that of all the things she, that you guys worked on together, she was really grateful for and loved when you brought her on the Scooby Doo movie. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, we did. We so I so it's interesting. I actually we were doing a a series like three movies uh, where we were kind of do, revisiting another writer friend of mine, Jeremy Adams, who actually works uh, writes sure. comics uh, now as well. Um, he's doing the Hal Jordan Green Lantern book uh, as we speak. Um, he uh, he was writing a movie called Return to Zombie Island. Zombie Island was a very popular. Uh, it was the first movie they did, I think, animated movie they did for for uh, Scooby Doo. And so he was doing revisiting that, and I uh, had scripted a uh, a follow up to the old series, The Thirteen Ghosts of Scooby Doo. Um, and there was a third movie that we were working on that we wanted to. It was Halloween feet, you know, uh, themed, and we wanted to bring in Cassandra. And so, as part of that, we ended up adding her into the second movie in that sort of trilogy, which was the zombie Island movie. And when we did that, Jeremy had already left the project was working on other things. And they asked me if I would come in and help out and, and script some of the Elvira dialogue. And, you know, it was like putting on, you know, a, a com an old comfortable robe for me. Like I was ready to go. I couldn't, couldn't wait. And then happily I got to go to the record and, and work with Cassandra and punch up some stuff. And we came up with some jokes in the room and it was so lovely. I mean, she, yeah. I'm so glad we got her to do that. She ended up being in the third movie, but Jeremy and I went on to other stuff and didn't work on it. So oh. we set it up in Zombie Island, and then they, happily they still followed it up and brought her in on that. Yeah, she just she she told me she was particularly impressed with that experience and with the writing on the on the movies. She uh, uh well, you know, she's a, a, an incredibly generous person, and uh, uh, but as a you know, it's you, you don't write for Cassandra, you write with Cassandra mm -hmm. because she's so talented and so funny yeah. and so good at this, and uh, so I learned a lot from her. It was well, and I always I always say like I I uh, nicely I get a lot of praise for capturing her voice, and I always say. The thing is, if someone has a well-defined voice, it's yeah. it's a lot easier. That is <laughs> like, so so true. I've written so characters true. that weren't as well conceived, not naming any names, uh, and it's a little bit more of finding your own version of it. You don't find your own version of Elvira. Elvira is eternal <laughs> and force of know, nature. And yeah. I would say I think the reason that it resonates with an audience that has seen the character for so long is i'm not saying that anyone could write it but the audience knows it's right when they see it because it's so well defined if you write a good elvira joke that sounds like elvira everyone in the audience watching goes of course that's what she would say in this situation that is exactly what she would say in this situation but you know and what's terrific is i wrote some jokes that you know, in my head, I thought, well, yeah, I know we're kind of going to push the envelope a little bit here. We're going to we're going to move Elvira into like another sphere or something. She's like, nope, <laughs> that's not what I would say. That's not what Elvira yeah. would say. Yeah. So, you know, and I love somebody who is just so, so, yeah. you know, versed on, you know, and knows that character. She knows the brand. And, and the funniest yeah. thing is that 
a couple of times I have pulled back a little bit on the blue humor. Yeah. And yeah. she catches it and says, nope, nope, nope. I send the the fourth, I think, issue of Elvira meets Vincent Price. They end up in uh, Cairo. And the issue was called Onks, you know, the symbol. Yeah. Onks for the memories. <laughs> and she wrote me back and said, David, Onks for the memories. Come on. What's wrong yeah. with you? And I was like, see, now me, I thought that was a little too nail on the head, cheap, whatever. She was like, good God, no. Yeah, I will not make that pun in in an Elvira comic. I was like, okay, fair. That's certainly. We titled that Knots show, that first show, we titled it uh, Cinema, like the movies, right? Going to the cinema, Cinema Seance, because it was about a seance and what have you. And uh, at some point along in the process, I don't know when. She made sure we ch- it was changed from C I N E M A to S I N. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is just because she's just she's willing to go for the. Yeah. The, the there was a there was a panel in uh, Elvira the Omega Ma'am, which was my post apocalyptic thing, <laughs> where she wakes up in a hospital, and she literally sent me and Dave Acosta the artist a note saying, "Now you are going to show my ass uh, when I have my back to the <laughs> camera, right?" Like. My ass is going to be hanging out of the gown, and I said, "Oh well, we were gonna we were gonna tastefully, but absolutely, ass <laughs> it is. And we'll, we will go. We are happy to oblige." Now, and David, I have ass. to tell you, the jokes that were cut were I was the opposite of you. Yeah, I went too far. Yeah, with the blue, <laughs> I went I went too far to the point where she said, "That's not Elvira." That's yeah. too blue. Even it's a, for it is a tricky. I mean, I the thing that cracks me up is that every time I have a joke that I think is questionably too filthy for a comic book, uh, the comic book, I, I, I put it in anyway. Comic book comes out and it's always like the joke that I see quoted in reviews. I see people screen grabbing the panel on Instagram. The very first issue I did, she meets she's time traveling in a coffin. And she meets uh, as one does. As one does. It's like Doctor Who, only you know, goth. But uh, she runs into Mary Shelley and Byron and Shelley, and uh, asks, you know, how they found her. And she says, "Oh, we were looking for your friend when we came across your coffin." And she says, "Well, I hope you toweled it off afterwards." And when I wrote that, I went, "Wow, we're leading off with a jizz joke in the very first issue i hope you came across when you came across it uh and and like that was everyone's favorite joke in that issue and i'm like well okay now i feel you know she's not just those jokes too like she also like there was a joke that i put into that knots show that i can't believe i can't believe she did it every night twice twice two shows a night she did this Mm -hmm. joke and i'm like it's the dumbest dumbest joke in the world and she pulled it off and she got laughs for it every single time, which was she picks up this like book of I guess it's like a book of spells or something. And she's like, you know, dusts it off and picks it. And she says, you know, according to this meaty tome, it's, you know, she's playing a, a medium, right? As you right. know, to conducting a seance. And she says, according to this meaty tome, it's a rare medium that gets the job well done. And she says, wait a minute. This isn't the book of spells. This is an in and out menu. <laughs> she throws it away. It's the dumbest joke in the world. It has it's nothing sexual about it at all. 
And yeah. yet she did it so perfectly, so well uh, that she got laughs with it every night. You know, I love and it. I couldn't believe it even made it in, but she identified it as something yeah. she could get laughs with, and she did. Mm -hmm. And I love a good wrong cards joke. It's it's yeah. always. <laughs> My wife used to produce a burlesque show, and believe it or not, our regular MC was actually his his regular gig was that he was a rabbi. <clears throat> his name was Gary Shapiro. Rest in peace. He passed away a while ago. But every once in a while, we'd have a show that would fall on a high holy day uh, or on a Saturday, a Friday night, and he was unable to do it. And I would step in for him and I would always start the show with saying with, you know, a PA would run up to me and say, here are Gary's cards for tonight's burlesque show. And I would say, Baruch, a toy on an up. No, like I would read some Hebrew off of some cards and they'll go, you know, well, it's good to know that Gary is. Uh, in Beverly Hills somewhere doing a bunch of pussy jokes for, uh, for some for some blue hairs in the, in the fuse because uh, he, he's got the burlesque cards. But yeah, we, we love the wrong cards joke. Uh, wrong cards. Was, I wish because of our the, the, the topic of our show, we should talk about how did you get into the comic book side of the industry? Oh, man, I, absolute right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I grew up uh, as a comic book fan nerd i wasn't i wasn't like a comic book guy like um where i had to have everything i was reading you know 75 titles and you know collecting right. everything but i i was a dc kid mm. assuredly um i also but more than that i was a cartoon kid and in the 80s there were lots of you know great like spider-man and his amazing friends was foundational for me um and uh but i was really a transformers gi joe like that's why my love of toys sort of endured sure. um but i got into batman when i was uh, a kid and and i was also really into star trek and so i started reading the dc star trek books that were coming out and uh and that was kind of then i was like oh comic books are kind of neat and so i started picking up batman books because i liked batman and and, and that would have uh, been the post wrath of khan star trek yeah, books, right a, yeah it those were pretty the, good if i remember correctly yeah they were they were great they were yeah. great it was the movie universe but uh sort of further adventures um yeah and uh yeah they uh they were they were they were great they also the next generation came out then and so they started doing some tie-ins for that as well which were fun um and then batman sort of led to me um, uh, when Reign of the Supermen, that storyline came out, I got really excited about that. I don't know why. It just really thrilled me. So I, that's when I started reading Superman comics. Uh -huh. And then uh, it became a little bit of a gateway. But then, you know, you grow up, you go and do other things. I went to drama school and, and uh, I still kind of collected toys, but I stayed away from comics for a little while. And then it was a, I would pick up a trade paperback every now and then. And then um, I, uh, I I saw a uh, I went to San Diego Comic Con and they premiered an animated movie based on uh, Flashpoint, which was Jeff Johns and Andy Kubert's mm -hmm. uh, book at DC, and it's the animated film is called The Flashpoint Paradox, um, produced by James Tucker, written by Jim Krieg, and I sat there. I was kind of aimless. I don't know about aimless, but I just quite, kind of was trying to figure out how to be, you know what to do in this business. I knew I wanted to be in this business, but I felt like I kept knocking on the wrong doors and I wasn't sure I had been writing on my own, but I always kind of told myself I couldn't be a professional writer because that's what other people do. Why would I do that? Um, 
And, but I watched that movie in ballroom 20 in, in San Diego with a huge crowd of people on a big screen. And I walked out and I said to my friend who I was there with, I said, that's what I want to do. And within a few years, I was writing, adapting those first ever Superman comics I ever, ever picked up, Reign of the Superman. Uh, I was adapting it for James Tucker, the guy who produced Flashpoint Paradox. And I was doing it with Jim Krieg, the guy who, who, who scripted that movie through a, a wild series of events. I was able to find, sort of find my way back to those people who inspired me and made me want to do this. So I got my start in animation and was work, I worked on a show called Justice League Action, which mm-hmm. was a hysterical and fun and really great DC show that sort of was gone before its time. And how many, uh, how many seasons was that? Was that just one season? Just one. Yeah, one well. season of like 52 11 minute episodes. Oh, okay. Cartoons. But and they were they were, comical in nature? Like was that the was that the angle? We'll say that again. Were they were they were they funny? Were they comical yeah, in nature? Yeah, yeah, they were they were funny, but they were but they were also very uh true to the DC universe sure. and the characters and um and and uh you know storylines that people were familiar with would sort of pop up or ideas. They were a kid cousin to the Justice League animated show and the and BTAS and all the people mm-hmm. who made those shows were making that show. Anyway, I was having the time of my life. Then they got me into uh, adapt the movie Reign of the Superman. I did that. I did uh, um, uh, I did some other. Uh, I did an original ish. So nothing's original when you're working with IP like this. Of course, because there's so many things, so many great stories and shoulders to stand on that you draw from a lot of stuff. So I did a, yeah. a quote unquote original Superman movie called Man of Tomorrow, but was very much, you know, uh, inspired by a lot of Superman stuff that came before it. And I adapted the long Halloween for animation as well. Ah. And, um, you know, I've been doing I've been doing other stuff, Teen Titans Go, DC Superhero Girls, I did some stuff for kids and then stuff for adults like Long Halloween was rated R. Um, and, uh, and you know, I've done some other stuff in animation. I, I worked on Masters of the Universe with Kevin Smith for Netflix and mm-hmm. um, Transformers and uh, and some other stuff. But Dan DiDio, when he was uh, running the the ship at DC, had this idea to do this thing called 5G, which was going to be this sort of new initiative, this new version of the DC universe. And one of the things he wanted to do was instead of pulling all the writers that were working on all the books that were current at that time, he wanted to bring in a whole new crop of writers to work on 5G. And what his idea was, was to bring in TV writers because he knew that TV writers were accustomed to sitting in a room together and working together and not, right. you know, stepping on all over each other. Um, and not that everyone does that, but I think he wanted to head that off at the pass. You know, that was just some, he knew that we were accustomed to working together. So he said, let's get TV writers and especially those who know these characters and know this universe. So right place at the right time. I had a bunch of credits as a guy who adapts and works around DC characters. And I was one of the guys who he brought in and, uh, and we started cooking on the 5G stuff, but then, Dan, uh, all the turmoil at Warner Brothers happened. They got sold right. to AT&T, then they got sold to Discovery, and Dan ended up leaving DC, and 5G w- left with him. <laughs> right. Oh, did we uh, lose you? Oh, am I not here? <laughs> did I go you, away? Well, you're, you're, you're frozen, but I think we... Yeah, right. you're, yeah we can you're, hear you. 
Uh, uh, I use some caffeine. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so okay, I had a little stroke there. Um, and I um, so so five G goes away, but you're yeah, still 5G goes away. And then they they offered another book to me, and uh, and I I jumped at the chance because I wanted so much to write comics and. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing at all. <laughs> I, I had no idea how completely, completely different writing comics is from writing television or even animation. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was a real trial by fire for me. I had an ongoing series right out the gate and, uh, you know, there were tons of expectations. I don't think they promoted it right. There was a lot of expectations around it. It was, you know, it was a, it was, it was epic. <laughs> I'll say that. But um, and it was and it's great and I'm proud of it. But I think uh, you know ultimately, um, you know that what was that, that first. Was, what was that first it was series? Teen Titans Academy. Okay. And it was this idea where the the old New Teen Titans crew from Marv Wolfman and George Perez sort of came back and and uh, became sort of, you know ran a school to sort of train the next generation of sidekicks mm -hmm. and uh, the next then bring up the next group of Titans. You know. And, um, and so that was that, I think a lot of people thought they were going to get a story just about the new teen Titans characters from back in the day. And, right. you know, they were, you know, unfortunately there was a whole crop of, uh, unfortunately for some readers, but fortunately for me, there was a whole crop of new students that I knew, new heroes that I created for the book. And, and, uh, we followed a lot of, uh, a lot of their stuff and, um, uh, but it was it was great. I'm really proud of it. The, like I said, DC was in such turmoil that I went through five editors in the, over the course yeah, of 15 wow. issues, and crazy. Uh, by the end, yeah, by by the end, it was it was I was the only one with any institutional memory about the book, and yeah. like the only champion for it. And I was not, not I'm not a DC employee, so okay. there really wasn't anybody left in the fold who was a champion for the book at DC. So when they had to sort of pare back the line, I was, you know, last in first out. So they, sure. they I was only going to do 12 issues. They asked me to stay on and do 15 and I did. And then we, we ended that. Then I ended up doing a uh, flashpoint beyond the flashpoint sequel with Jeff Johns, who I had never met. Uh, and, uh, but we pitched him, Jeremy Adams and I pitched him an idea and he said, um, I want to do this with you, but let's throw out that idea. You guys can keep that. Let's come up with a whole new one, just us. And so we did like the three of us came up with a whole new story together mm. and, and we worked together like a hilariously, like you do in a writer's room, the way Dan right. envisioned. We sat Jeremy and Jeff and I sat in his office with gigantic whiteboards in front of us and broke a story and, and, you know, figured out the characters and the voices and the dialogue and everything. And, um, and we'd kind of go off and script parts of it and then share it with each other. And, you know, it was a, a real great co collaboration. And, and, and that's what led to the book that I'm doing now, which is, you know, Jeff called me one day and said, I think you should be writing an, a golden age, Alan Scott, Green Lantern mm -hmm. story in the 1940s, because now <laughs> we know that he was a closeted gay man during that period. I think you have something to say about that. I bet you've got a story. And I was like, I don't know about that. And had then, another had another writer established that before you came along. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, was, it happened. It happened first. The Earth Two version happened ten or twelve years ago, and then a few years ago, James Tynan uh, had Alan Scott in the main universe come out of the closet to his kids, and and uh, that was like an Infinite Frontier Zero, and uh, and so so, but they hadn't done anything with it. Like they they had him right. come out of the closet, but he had sort of guested in other people's books here and there. 
Alan Scott hadn't had his own title, hasn't had his own title in 75 years. Yeah, I, I, wow. that's what I, that's one of the things, you know, I, my outsider view of the quote unquote controversy, uh, it seemed all pegged yeah. to you as the creator of this. And I hadn't realized that it had been previously established. And yeah. this is one of those things that you see a lot in, uh, in dire nerddom of like, you know, when someone tells you they're really, they're really upset about what they've done to Alan Scott. I'm <laughs> like, you barely knew Alan Scott yeah. existed a week ago, man. There are no, you cannot tell me there are, Diehard Alan Scott fans no. who are deeply, in, deeply involved, not simply in him as a character, but in his his uh, very important uh, heterosexuality. That just, <laughs> you know, and so and I have to say, not to not to be stereotypical in any way, but when I first saw before we had met, when I first saw the solicitations for that book, I was like, Alan Scott gay. Yeah, tracks. <laughs> like, I like I was like, it's actually not a, not, a, not a stretch. His hair is very good. They did it. I think that's why they did it because yeah. it kind of did track a little bit, especially if you're telling the story about someone who stayed in the closet during yeah. a period of time when it was smart to stay in the closet. Yeah, for some reasons, yeah. and uh, who was wrestling with something like that his whole life, who had never had the kind of relationships that you think of it was certainly not like a Lois Lane Clark Kent type of relationship, no, not right. even a Batman Catwoman type of relationship. Right. His relationships were very strange and, and, um, and so I, and strained. <laughs> and I think that some people looked at that and thought, you know, right. This, this could be a guy who comes out of the closet later right. in life, which is real. It happens yeah. all the time. Of your course. friends, your neighbors, your, well, that, your parents, your uncles, they come out of the closet later in life and you've had no idea that well, they, that's the, you know, and they, and they had kids and they had a life and you don't scream retcon in their face, you know? Like, yeah. That, that, it's just a new layer to the character. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about who Alan Scott reminds me of and uh, it's another guy named Scott. It's Randolph hmm. Scott. Uh, oh. You know, another tall, handsome, blonde who was very gay and very much in the closet. And, you know, there are today people who will argue with you that he wasn't, but I'm like the man lived with Cary Grant for five years. Like, you know, when they were both millionaires, they shared a house. You know? Have you seen the trailers for that new Cary Grant show that, uh, yeah, Archie or something like that? Yeah, I, don't I, know who's I, playing I didn't notice who's playing Randolph Scott in it. I watched a little behind. I don't think he's in it because I oh, watched yeah, a little late, it's later. Yeah. Well, I watched a little behind the scenes on it and yeah. they were talking to Diane Cannon, like uh, just interviewing her. And they asked her, you know, well, what about these rumors that he was gay? And she said, oh, I never saw anything like that. I don't know what they're talking about. And she's a producer on the show. Right. And I thought, oh, so this show is going to be about heterosexual Cary Grant, which is a really bold take. Interesting. You know? Um, well, so I mean, I I, know. you know, in terms Jason of Isaac's looks incredible, though, by the way, he looks. Incredible. Yes, he he looks incredible. He he looks yeah. like he's, he's I think he's a, a very underrated actor, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and a very nice guy. I met him at a con once. Mm. Uh, you know, there's that phenomenon of uh, a lot of cons separate the comics people from the Hollywood people. And, you know, you'll have, you know. You'll have Marv Wolfman treated like he's less important than a guy who had three lines on an episode of Star Trek 45 years ago. And it's like, that's sad. Uh, and sometimes they combine them. And I was in a con where 
we were all in the same green room and he was very friendly and very uh frodo not so much um by the way <laughs> uh but jason R. isaacs was really great but yeah i mean and i think you know diane keaton is uh, diane keaton diane cannon is coming from the point of view of someone who was in a marriage with him and yeah. had sex with him so obviously had she a, had a, a child with him yeah man. so obviously yeah. she believes a certain thing about him uh yeah. and i've seen yeah. people come back and try to like retcon his relationship with randolph scott is no really they were best friends and roommates and i'm like Come on, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's also weird to me that we, we end up in this rhythm of like talking about it as if it's like a binary thing. Like he was, yes. or he wasn't. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like there was, the he, he just was, you know? And, and, yeah. And, yeah. and it's, I mean. Well, you know what it is though? It's it's part of bisexual erasure and it's a real yes. problem that yeah. we have because yeah. it doesn't just happen among the heterosexual community. It happens oh. among the homosexual community. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, there's a lot of, oh, well, that can't be a, a real thing, you know, because I feel this way, so other people yeah, yeah. not. No, in the, yeah. in the, in the 1990s, I, I dated a few people <clears throat> who at the time called themselves lesbians in public and who wanted to hide our relationships because of how hostile the lesbian community was at the time to the idea I thought of- you were because they were so embarrassed of you. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> certainly the case. Uh, so I, I, I don't let rather... him tell people that we're podcasting partners. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. they would rather tell everyone they were hated lesbians. Yeah, than that but, they were dating you. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, the, just but it, within that community, there was hostility to the idea of you know every once in a while I like to date a dude. Uh, you know that was considered. Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. know that, the expression that, "gold that, star that, lesbian" doesn't exist because everyone is cool with bisexuality uh yeah, you know yeah yeah i do think though i do think we we don't always help when with with some of the stories we tell i think that sometimes it's a little ham-fisted like um when we have characters you know in comics or in other stories who who come out as bisexual but you know it's just sort of a a placeholder word that maybe producers or editors feel is more palatable than yeah. saying homosexual and because yeah. they're only ever in a homosexual relationship and right. their, their their bisexuality never becomes a story point which by the way what stories you could tell what human stories one could tell about right. what it means to be truly bisexual and right. um but they, we don't normally get those and i think that ends up coloring people's perception of what that is well yeah um, you, you set up these categories right and yeah. and 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 it produces this kind of tribalism and it, it is valuable yeah. it is valuable because okay i i you know you're you're this person you identify as 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 gay let's say and 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 you have you have had to fight your entire life well you find all these other people like you who, who have had to fight let's get together and fight together and that's great right but what it can also do is well okay well this person doesn't quite fit into this category so they're over here are we against them uh they're they're you know i i mean this tribalism kind of happens uh naturally and and then you have these people who maybe just don't feel at home in any of these tidy categories that we've made and and that's very dangerous right you also get this you get this hilarious thing where you know people on the conservative side of things are like you know no one was gay 50 years ago. No one was bisexual. No one was asexual. Yeah. No one was trans. It's like, no, you just oppressed them so hard they didn't let you know. Like, that, yeah. you yeah. know, it's it's not, it, 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 we're, we're getting it, it, close to having an honest idea of yeah. human sexuality that we haven't had. 
uh, in in the history of human sexuality. Well, yeah, I mean, when, when, when we were talking about Tim's book, that that was what occurred to me, you know, and and these people who got butt hurt over it. But it's like, but but in like the last decade, um, the percentage of people who openly identify as LGBTQ it's doubled, right? And mm. there, there aren't twice as many, you know, uh, there are twice as many of those people now that, that there were 10 years ago. It has just, yeah. um, it, it, you know, people feel more comfortable coming out, uh, yeah. uh, 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 all of these things. And so if and, and so they think that, you know, the the number is they think about 10 percent of the population is probably probably identifies in that way. And and that's probably just scratching the surface. But it's like, yeah. but but but, you know, you talk about this book. And, and so 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 it is timely. Right. I mean, we are as a society, like we are improving leaps and bounds in terms of this. People are feeling more comfortable coming out, being honest, being them, not having to hide, but, but exploring that is, is really now, but, but also we had this, we had 10% of the population, at least at minimum that walked into a comic shop for the longest time and didn't see themselves. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and now that they can do that, yeah, you know, I mean, can you imagine any other business where you would ignore 10% of the population? That's absurd. It's that's bad the business. Whole, that's you know? the whole thing. I mean, yeah. the whole. I think the reason why you see the uptick in the people identifying publicly um, and being truthful about who they are, uh, it, it's because we tell these stories. We have to yeah. tell them. Yeah. We have to tell them. And and that's what storytelling has always done. And it's and it will hopefully always do. When we tell each other our stories, we all get to know who each other are, and we get more comfortable with each other. I think it's funny that you mentioned tribalism because i was talking about that i mentioned i had a tweet about this earlier or a post or whatever they call them now um and there's this idea of you know somebody said boy why you know wh what are they wh why do they make up stuff like they they make up stuff about like my book in particular i guess you know they're just like lies that certain you know websites and and people with an agenda you know, they just make up lies about about the book to sort of and they know that people are going to buy them. But it's because it's they said, well, why do they do that? I said, it's just it's tribal. It's yeah. they see themselves as being in a tribe and they see me and people like me and Alan as being in a different tribe than them. I think we're in the same tribe, but they don't see it that way. Yeah, they're and they're scared of that. And the way that they deal with their fear is by striking at us, by trying to diminish us and 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 thereby winning because it's tribal it's teams they want yeah. their team to win and when they don't have anything they can weaponize against you they have to make stuff up yeah. Yeah. and they're happy to do it especially in the age of social media when people don't ever click on the article they just read the headline yeah. and they you know start to believe those things they start to believe they their trusted sources of information should not be trusted but they don't, people don't know that and they're not savvy enough about that. Well, it's also, anyway, I, yeah. I think if you, you know, people have gotten used to the idea, you know, particularly white men, white straight men have gotten used to the idea of being the default human who's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and simply the existence True. of, and also I think there's this knowledge of how they treated everybody else and the idea that, when I am no longer the default human, I will be treated badly because that's how I treated everybody else when I mm -hmm. was in charge, when I was the majority. Uh, so everything, I remember reading a science article when I was a little kid that said, you know, 
that over the course of time, white people would not be the majority in the United States of America. And as a little mm-hmm. kid, I had a moment of, oh, that's scary. That's bad. And then I was kind of like, why? <laughs> you know, like, have you, a black person ever done anything bad to you? Have you like, do you have a problem with this? Is this, and I was like, no, it's actually just that thing of like, it is comfortable being the top of the food chain. And it is uncomfortable thinking that the top of the food chain might move and mm-hmm. you might be victimized like the way you've seen other people victimized. And I think it's a there's a weird confession in it of like, I don't want to be treated like a, some gay was treated under the gay regime. It's like <laughs> maybe the problem is how gays are treated then. Like maybe the problem isn't who's in charge. The problem is your treatment of yeah. the rest of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me tell you. I I I think that the the upside to all of this, it certainly, you 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 know, the all the rats scurry out when you when you put out something like this Alan Scott book, mm-hmm. um, which look undeniably, his sexuality in 1941 and in, in 1930s and 1941 is an inextricable part of his identity, and this is a story about identity. It's about when your secret identity has a secret identity. So right. we we have to go there, and we have to talk about some of the things that we're talking about, and some of it starts right. in the darkness because we're going to have to, you know, it's the Green Lantern story. He's going right. to end up moving into the light and becoming a beacon uh, to shine that light for the rest of the world and then the universe and the multiverse. Um, but one of the great privileges is not just, you know, shining a light and all those those rats scurrying out, which we've seen, but it's, it, I was saying to someone today that actually I said it to my husband yesterday. I said, you know, it's sort of like writing this story is a little bit like, and this is going to get real nerdy. It's sort of like running Cerebro uh, when you're Professor X, <laughs> because it's like, I am, sh- you know, it's like I'm shining this beacon to, I, to identify and reach out to my people. Yeah. Where my, and- where my mutants at? Yeah. yeah. And, well, yeah. and they're and they're all there's so many wonderful, wonderful people of every you know color of the rainbow. Um, uh, you know, who who and when I say that, I don't just mean LGBTQIA plus people, I mean, you know, a lot of heterosexual allies as well, people yeah. coming out of uh, of the woodwork and and celebrating the, the story that we're telling. And it means so much to me that we're reaching those folks it you know it's just nice to have all i care about i'm not it's i'm not here to i'm not here to change people's views about anything political i'm not here with an you know i'm not being an activist i just am telling a story about a guy and i'm trying to be as honest and truthful as i can in telling that story and in the end as storytellers i think the best sort of reward we get is when we find that we've reached out to someone and they've identified and felt seen and, and enjoyed what we've done on a level that's not just entertainment, but that is enriches their life. Even, you know, in a little bit, even in a small way, Uh, that's been the real great blessing and benefit of, of doing it, you know, and Um, and, I'll I'll take all the the rats in the world. If it means that I get to find my people. The thing about that is, Yes, it's an LGBTQ plus story, whatever, but every human being's story, literally every human being's story is a story of figuring out who you are and figuring out how to be true to that. So it is not exclusionary. It is not Mm -hmm. limited to 
superheroes are metaphors to begin with. Superman and Clark Kent is a thing about reconciling who you are inside with who you are outside. Like that yeah. has always been the story. Uh, and that's, you can apply that to the, so the psychological spiritual growth of any human being. If it's well-written, you don't have to be, you know, it's the other, you know, the other sort of hetero male fan thing of like, well, I can't identify with this story because it's not right. about me. Right. It's like, I don't know. I identify with La Femme Nikita. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, she's, yeah. A, she's a hot stringy lady with who's addicted to heroin, but I still see parts of my journey in her self-actualization. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, for, for me, it's like the variables are different for me, but, yeah. but it's the same equation. I mean, yeah. I, I needed to, I grew up in a housing project in Detroit. I had to figure out who I was. I had to realize that I could not be who who I wanted to be there. I had to fight my way out. I had to find the place where I belonged. I, I had to make a new family, make new friends, all of that stuff. And that is a universal story. And 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 whether whether you're gay, straight, you know, what what whatever, like that is that is all that is our story. And, yeah, and if you can tell that story in a really personal way, put yourself into it, and people see that. That's like that's incredible. I mean, I think that. I've been, you know, I'll tell you, I've been sober for 15 years. And one of the things that I, that helped, that has helped me stay sober is listening to other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And when they tell their story, and sometimes I hear stories that on the surface have nothing you would mm -hmm. think in common yeah. with my story. Yeah. And yet I have never heard one that I didn't walk away thinking I'm just like them. Yeah. They're just like me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so I think when you, when you have the ability, the sensitivity to be able to listen to stories that aren't necessarily about you on the surface and find the, the things that are, that you do relate to, I just think as a listener, as yeah. a viewer, as a reader, you know, you're getting the best that comics and movies and TV have to offer. If you can yeah. do that, then you're yeah. using them right. Um, but I will say this. You also, I think that there is much too far too much importance put upon the idea of whether one can identify with a story personally. I think the stories are what they are. They, and you must accept that other people identify with the characters and the situations in a story. And therefore that has value to you to hear it and to read it and to listen to it. Storytelling there's this idea that storytelling needs to happen in an echo chamber, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, where it's all, it's just supposed to be confirmation well, bias the, all the time. It's but the, no, it's the dances with wolves phenomenon. I, I, I will only be comfortable learning about the American Indian. If you give me a white dude uh, who's the main character and who solves everyone's problems and who everybody yeah. loves. And, yeah. you know, I can't, I, I can't yeah. just, I get, you know, we, we're, we're going to make Killers of the Flower Moon, but we're going to cast two of the biggest movie stars in the world as the villains. Mm -hmm. And we're going to kind of center them because that's who we are and that's the movie we're making. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, but that thing about seeing your own story and stories that are nothing like yours, uh, not to overshare, but I had a horrifically abusive relationship with an employer that I had not admitted to myself was an abusive relationship. And it was I was Cassandra, literally, wasn't it? It was and, yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't Cassandra. <laughs> and I, and I was reading that Ronan Farrow article about Weinstein 
and all of the excuses the women were making for Weinstein, mm. the victims, all of the things they were saying about, well, it was kind of my fault because I put myself in this situation and I volunteered to do this mm. and I didn't say no and all this. It broke me because I was like, wow, all of those rationalizations sound really, really fucking familiar. And even mm. though the situation is not the same, it is in some ways reversed. It's I was abused by a, an employer. That is now a thing I know about myself. I did not know that before I read this issue so because I because yeah. I bought the rationalizations. The rationalizations yeah. were were it was hearing the, another person say them where I went, oh, but you were abused. So therefore, I who use these same rationalizations, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I was I was abused. Well, yeah. I think that's that's what I'm yeah. saying too. Is that you know there's there is just no requirement to go into listening to a story that you know but you have to identify you have to on the surface identify with everything about that story um and and so therefore we should listen to them but the thing is i'm here to tell you <laughs> if you pay attention and listen to the all those stories you will david just like you yeah. know you just you it, just exemplified you will find that there yeah. are pieces that you do respond to and that you do identify with it, yeah time. yeah yeah and if you don't you're not looking because we're talking about two yeah. people falling in love you know uh yeah. who has not experienced that i love this person no matter who it is and i desperately want them to love me and they're mm. not for this reason or whatever or i want to be accepted by my parents by my boss well, by my sister by this new group of people, these are universal human things. And, and, and if you're not identifying with them, you might be a sociopath. Uh, uh, you're not looking hard. You're not looking hard enough. Um, I, I don't know. You might be an asshole. You're probably an asshole. But, you know, look at, look at the importance of culture and art and language. You know, one of the things, if you study the history of homosexuality, they're literally what like there isn't a language for it. There's not a there's not an acceptable framework for I'm a man. I'm in love with another man. You know, mm -hmm. uh, this may seem like a, a, a strange movie to bring up in this context. But The Wild Bunch is a movie about Ernest Borgnine, who is in love with William Holden, who mm -hmm. is unaware of it. And William Holden is obsessed with his ex-partner, Robert Ryan. And that relationship isn't romantic, that's friendship. But Ernest Borgnine, there's no language for him to understand how he feels about William Holden, but he literally dies crying his name. Like it's it's a beautiful love story about a man who doesn't, there's no vernacular in which he can say, I love you and you're obsessed with this guy who broke your heart and abandoned you and is now mm -hmm. hunting you for millionaires but I'm here. I'm right here in front of you. I am your buddy. I'm going to die for you. I love you more than anything. It's a beautiful love story made by a very macho director with very macho actors. But I refuse to believe that Sam Peckinpah and Ernest Borgnine didn't know that Dutch was in love with Pike. Like it's, it's, oh. it's in every scene in the movie that they're in together. Yeah, and look, I mean, look, it doesn't even have to be in, in that situation. It doesn't even have to be coded for anything romantic. I mean, yeah. there is a great story to be told about men not being able, not having the language that to be too. able to be, you know, to have, uh, you know, a, a platonic love. Well, and, and I would man. say that, and you in know? that movie, it's not like it's, 
it's a romantic love more. It's not a sexual love. It's not right. Ernest Borgnine isn't looking at William Holden saying, I wish I could bang this guy. It's a deep emotional. He's not saying some people I mean, enjoy oysters and snails. <laughs> yeah. I you know, funny thing about the, the my father, that scene was in the roadshow version of Spartacus when it first came out and they later yeah. cut it. And when I watched Spartacus for the first time as like a 12 or 13 year old, my father was like, there was a fruity thing in here between Olivier and Tony Curtis that they cut, <laughs> you know, an oysters and snails metaphor thing, yeah. you know. And then, they, uh, and then they restored it, but they lost the audio. So they had to get Anthony Hopkins yes. to come in and do. You know, they, they asked, uh, was was Olivier's ex-wife? Joan Plowright. Joan said, Plowright. They said, said, who's, who's the best? Who's the best? Yes. Yeah. Who's the best uh, Olivier? And she said Tony <laughs> but, Hopkins. But when you watch it, yeah. it so obviously goes from Lawrence Olivier to Anthony Hopkins. Maybe not at that time. Maybe we didn't. Anthony oh, Hopkins. It's still, so but I would say it's actually more shocking that Antoninus, that Tony Curtis's voice drops eight octaves as he suddenly ages 60 years. <laughs> he did too, yeah. You know, he goes from sounding like. And I, and I love and I love you, Spartacus, as I have never loved a man before. You. Too. I thought they got Kathleen. I like, oyster, I like oysters and snails. <laughs> like, you know, like, I could have sworn they brought in Kathleen Turner and not Tony. Yeah, Curtis. it's it, it it that it, it's just funny that the Tony Curtis voicing him stuff himself is a little more awkward than the I, Anthony. I, I would have loved for older Tony Curtis and Anthony Hopkins to just redub the whole movie because there was such gravitas to both of them that would have been yeah. so cool. Yeah, um, but yeah. it is, I, you, know, you know, I wrote a, I, I wrote a, no, go yeah. ahead. No, I was just just to put a cap on that. Like masculinity, the language of masculine, you know, platonic, non-romantic, non-sexual love. Uh, mm -hmm. Is something that is only—it's only recently developing. It's only—it's right. historically—it's so new. Although there was a time yeah. <laughs> when you could talk about those things, but it, yeah. it's Sparta. Well, yeah, yeah. We, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, like, you know, like we showed it in literally every '80s buddy cop movie. Uh, we just didn't right. say it. You know what right. I'm saying? Uh, That's true. Yeah, you know, Lethal Weapon is a, a love story. Uh, Top Gun is a, yeah. a is a love Top story. Top Gun is very much a love yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that one might actually be coded though. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The sequel should have been called Bottom Gun. There you go. Wow, oh, David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening. That's yeah. it. That's that's brand new, by the way. That's not. Uh, I haven't been saving that one up. That just. Yeah, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think when we're editing this section of the podcast, we should have uh, uh, Kenny Loggins playing with the boys. Uh, just kind of fade in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the it's the danger zone, Ryland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Go. you can't go right up, fly right up to the danger zone, Dave. It's yeah, really good. right, right into the danger zone. Oh yeah. boy, but uh, but yeah, no, I wrote a 1930s set story, a Doc Savage comic, mm. uh, and I set a lesbian relationship at the heart of it. But I mean, even that, like. The two women involved were not particularly lesbians historically or anything else, but they were two women who would have encountered each other. And I couldn't think of a reason in the world why they wouldn't have fallen in love with each other. Uh, Doc Savage has a niece, a cousin, Pat Savage, who is canonically an aviatrix and a tough woman of the 1930s. And uh, the story I came up with is she sends doc savage looking for amelia Earhart because it's her girlfriend hmm. and she misses her and she wants to know what really happened to her 
and it was a fascinating piece of cultural i wasn't i was subtle with it up to a point but literally in the first issue when she asks doc to go looking for amelia doc says i know you loved her pat but she's gone the the air force and the navy couldn't find her george pullman couldn't find like you know you don't 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 set yourself up for this disappointment i know you loved her um and i noticed this hilarious thing in the reviews and the reactions to it the average doc savage fan is well over 60 years old <laughs> and those guys literally interpreted that story as you know pat enlists her brother to her her cousin to go look for her best pal Whereas comic book reviewers under 30 were like, so these two lesbians, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. they didn't, like they didn't even like, they were not fooled for a second as to what that story was, was really about. Now, now let me ask you, uh, are you like me? Like when that story came out, did people scream retcon and call you a groomer? And a <laughs> no, because no one, no, only because no, no one cares about Doc Savage. And as <laughs> I said, the, Earhart for that. <laughs> and, and also the people who, as I said, the the fans who would have been invested in Doc Savage, it flew over their heads. Yeah. Now, I will say there were – I went to a Doc Savage convention. Everyone was very nice to me. I spoke about what was really going on in the book, and they were very accepting of it. Now, that said, there were about 70 Doc Savage fans in the world, uh, So uh, and they were, they were a good bunch. But uh, – you know, but yeah, I was actually a little, I expected a little more pushback on it and I really, really, really didn't get it. Uh, and that's, that's fine. I mean, it is always funny, you know, Doc Savage isn't a particularly uh, woke protagonist, but it's always funny to me when people like react to something that has always been very, very liberal with great shock that it is now suddenly you know when you meet the conservative star trek fan it's always like the biggest head scratcher <laughs> of like you know how how bad are you at reading subtext if you can watch star trek subtext and think <laughs> no it's text in a lot of episodes it's text. <laughs> it is it is uh and in a, and in the best possible way yeah and like there are literally six episodes about us intervention in vietnam that take various positions on it but mostly the the most positive they can come up with is regrettable nightmare that must be done. Like that's that's as close as Roddenberry gets to an in, an, an endorsement of the war. Uh, Frank Gorshin literally has black paint on one side, <coughs> white paint on the other side. Yeah. Can I can I tell you Ryland's probably heard me say this before, but can I tell you one thing about that episode, which everybody knocks for the obviousness of it and for how nail on the head it is? There's a brilliance to that choice, and this is the brilliance. How do you make a show about racism set in a time period where your protagonists do not literally, not in the way that bullshit people say it now, they literally do not racialize human interactions. They don't racialize interactions. How do you create a form of bigotry that will be as invisible to the audience as it is to your characters? And the genius of that episode is when Fred and Gorshin says, but he is white on the right side and I am white on the left side. And the whole audience and Captain Kirk goes, oh, yeah. 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 I guess you guys are different. Creating a, <laughs> creating an, a difference that's that obvious yeah. once it's pointed out to you. And also yet 
No audience member ever watching that show mm-hmm. ever got to that moment and went, oh, no, he, they're, uh, Gorshin's white on they're a different side. completely different. <laughs> yeah. To me, that's the unspoken genius of that episode. Is yeah. It's almost impossible to come up with a metaphor for racism that will be as invisible to the audience as it is to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. I mean, it's designed for the audience to say, that's ridiculous. They're they're the same. Exactly. You know, and that's and that's the ridiculousness that's of it is that's actually the, the point. It's the beauty of great science fiction yeah. in which the original series of Star Trek might be the the last best example of pure science fiction that yeah. that is designed to to teach us about who we are right now, you know. Yeah. Uh even though it's set in the future and is, is Yeah. No, and, and you know, and you know, I don't know if you know the story. That's why the reason why Rod Serling created the Twilight Zone is he had a TV teleplay that he produced twice that was about a lynching. And mm. both times the network tore the heart out of it. Yeah. And he literally said, you know what? If this was about a robot or an alien and not a black guy, yep. I could teach this lesson. But as yeah. long as it's about a black guy and it's set in a small town in America full of white people, I, I, they won't air it. Yeah. But if it's, well, but if well, it's an alien, like, I, I can tell whatever story I want. You know, you sometimes know. we give executives, uh, you know, some shit. But, um, uh, but it, it's also interesting the way in which they can serve as a mirror to a broad audience yeah. and we can say you know like it's not just that you got that by the censors or got it by the executives you manage to the when great science fiction happens you manage to get it past the reader or the viewer yeah. and let it sit in their head and ruminate and maybe yeah. change their heart that's all we do as artists right like politicians and you know government officials like they can change laws but nothing nothing really changes unless you change people's hearts and that's only artists do that only artists that great line from twin peaks which was so ahead of its time when uh david lynch and you know it's great that it's david lynch playing the character of the fbi supervisor with the trans david duchovny playing a trans agent and I can't remember how what the setup of the scene is, but someone asked him, like, how did you deal with pushback against your trans agent? And then he says, I said, fix your hearts or die. <laughs> you know? And it's such a great slogan. Fix your hearts or die. Oh, you know? perfect. And it's perfect. Yeah. You know, and I it's not a it's a fascinating piece of writing because it's not a threat. It's not, I'm going to kill you if you don't accept trans people. It's, it's kind of a warning. It's a, di- yeah, you're a dinosaur. Yeah. You're yeah. a fucking dinosaur. Catch the fuck up. This is humanity. Yeah. And accept it or to hell yeah. with you. And I got to say, like, with this Alan Scott book I'm doing is the, you know, the first time I'm, I'm a, I'm an out of the closet gay man who writes, stuff in Hollywood and it's the first time I've ever written uh, you know something that is that features a character like this and uh-huh. that delves into our story and, as, as a as a community and uh because I you know sometimes I feel like things don't have to be on the nose um yeah. uh, you know much like the way science fiction is has always been so good at 
at, at doing. I mean, I did, I did this Superman movie called Man of Tomorrow. You were talking about uh, sort of, you know, the Superman as a as an allegory before. But, you know, I didn't tell anybody when I was writing it, but I was writing it like a coming out story. It was the idea yeah. was he was terrified. Kal-El was terrified to tell the world he was an alien because he felt like the world was so xenophobic. And so, you know, mm-hmm. they would hate him and he didn't have a place here. And it was just me as a kid figuring out who I was. I was writing a love right. letter to that kid telling yeah. him that, you know, you, you know, you're going to, you, you might grow up to be Superman. I mean, maybe not Superman, but you might grow up to aspire to be Superman. Yep. <laughs> and you might grow up to write him. Well, and you know, and the funny thing about that is it's also, it, you ultimately end up with the same message as uh, the Simpsons episode, Homer's phobia. Oh, I got you to accept me. And all I had to do was save your save life. Your life. <laughs> you know, like the little, the only little thing I had to do to get you to accept me as a human being was save all your lives. What about <laughs> queer? Queer. That's what you like to be called, right? Yeah. Well, that or John. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, our I, word I, I, for your guy. It, it, it was funny. My mind went right to that episode when Avalone, you were talking about the the old idiots uh, who um, you know who the the, the gay storyline and went right over their heads. And when Marge is trying to get Homer oh. to like to understand that this is a gay man, and she's yeah. like, "No, no, Homer, uh, I think he prefers the company of men." And Homer's who like, doesn't? "Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> Such a good line. Yeah, so good. Yeah." No, it's, oh, it's, it's, that, that, that episode that, was also kind of that episode. I think yeah. at a, the time when that episode was on network primetime television, did more to change people's perceptions and change their hearts yeah, than yeah. you know changing the law necessarily. Well, and, would. and also, like, like yeah. Will and Grace, Will and Grace did more for LGBTQ rights than mm-hmm. you know a, a, a stack of government officials and politicians can yeah. can claim to have done because yeah. for 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 a, for years here we were in your living room we were yeah. your friends and we were not threatening to you and we were just yeah. like everybody else and we made you laugh just like everybody yeah, else and, that, and, and and you know that's why you know anyone can be as open or closed about their personal life as they like but there's the point where you go think about how much good it would do the world if tom cruise came out of the closet well, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously there's other complicating things with him. Yeah, I but, don't know if we want but you know, but <laughs> his enormous popularity as a you know quote unquote macho movie star, it's better than Mel Gibson coming out as an anti semite. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. as 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 <clears throat> as things were hiding from the public go, but uh, you know, it's the thing about the Ellen and the Rosie of it all is they were in you know, suburban white ladies living rooms and they were their best pal. Mm-hmm. And that radical, you know, a generation of old middle-aged white ladies got kind of like, Oh, I don't hate Ellen. So therefore. Yeah. You know, but a lot, you know, but those, the, both of them, you know, Oh, in the fullness of time, not great. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. it was, it, you know, that's just part of the territory, you know, yeah. we, we when we are open and honest and we tell our stories and we are who we are and we tell the truth it 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 can it helps but then also it helps to radicalize further radicalize some of the people who yeah. who you know want want so desperately to own yeah. us and to win um but that's just that's that's the price of 
of progress sometimes you know we yeah. have to that's why we must be ever vigilant well like, and that's, um, yeah, yeah and, and, and avalone hinted at this where it's like i mean these guys are losing you know what i'm saying this is a losing yeah. fight these are the yeah. last gasps and when do you fight the hardest and the dirtiest yeah. that's when you know you are close to death when you are close yeah. to losing yeah, it's, when it's close pretty to close death. to the it's pretty close to the metaphor they have chosen for themselves but the, yeah yeah I, the, I, the world is getting is getting blacker browner gayer uh, 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 everything this is a losing battle it's yeah, it, go ahead Sorry, yeah well I, you know what it is it's not even that the world is getting blacker browner and gayer yeah. it's that people are being who they are yeah. unapologetically right and totally whereas, fair. even yeah. if it was the color of your skin you still you know were segregated or in some cases segregate you're segregated yourself and ghettoized yeah. yourself from from the you know a society that you knew was dangerous to you yeah and uh you know i i, I always talk about the the great ridiculous privilege i experience as a white man you know, I, I I get to walk into lots of rooms that people whose diversity is on the, you know, on their skin and on their face. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily get that that great privilege. Um, and uh, and it's something we you know, if I'm aware of it you know, then I think we all need to sort of be aware of it. Yeah. Well, they, um, they, 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 there's also this privilege of of living where we live because we can be who we want to be. And, and I, 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 you know, to, to, to a much bigger degree than we can, let's say where I came from or middle America or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it you're right. You're I, right. I, however, yeah. yes. however, I'll tell you, and this yeah. is maybe just a great tragedy, but I will tell you just to be honest and tell you the truth. I, I, I don't hold my husband's hand walking down the street, even in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, and I, and I hate it. I yeah. hate that. But, but all it takes is one nut with a one gun idiot. or what, yeah. whatever, or with an, with an agenda, yeah. with an idea, with, you know, and uh, it's just not war. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to be an activist, you know, I'm not yeah. trying to, you know, I, I hate that, Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I can't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't share a kiss in public at the yeah. mall when we're shopping for Christmas, you know, yeah. Um, because people are, even in Southern California, you know, there, there are people who, I mean, even in Southern harm. California, people will yell at you for wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah. That it's happened. That, that yeah. happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's um, happening now. You know? And my point is to say that, and this is why telling this story about Alan Scott in the 1940s, uh, is I think for me so important because it's not a story about the 1940s just like right. just like mm -hmm. the star trek story is not about people with black paint on one side and white paint on the other you know it we're telling a story about who we are right now yep. you know this is still who we are this is still stuff we have to talk about and deal with and yeah, and well we, we are change if people don't know our stories so yeah. we have to tell them and people are still in the closet i mean you know that's that's not a 1940s phenomenon. George Takei, what was it, five years ago he came out? Six, ten? You know, he was yeah. 75, 80. And people screamed retcon at him and refused to accept it. Yeah. No, they did. Well, they did. I think it's funny that he doesn't like that they've made Sulu gay in the in the John Cho movies. Because he's like, yeah. no, Sulu isn't gay. I played yeah. a straight man on Star Trek. And that's who Sulu is. And it's kind of 
hurtful that you've decided that because I'm gay, now Sulu is suddenly gay when he never was for, you know. And you have a straight guy playing him. Yeah, (laughs) I know. That's the other... That's yeah. the other incredible irony to me. If you were going to do that, <laughs> they thought they were being progressive. I think there, there are gay actors, and of all of the like, that's also the the, the there's a racism there in right. Chris Pine does kind of resemble young Shatner if you put them side by side. Keith Urban surprisingly is able to make himself look like yeah. Forrest Kelly. John Cho doesn't look a goddamn thing like George Takei. And he's not Japanese. Japanese. (laughs) You know, he's just an Asian dude. He's just a. Which is so unbelievably. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even want to use the word, but my goodness, it is problematic to say the least. I'm trying to remember the name of the director, but (laughs) Jane Fonda produced a version of Ambrose Bierce's The Old Gringo. And she got a, a. I can't remember what, but it's, you know, story takes place in Mexico and she got a director, a very fine director, but he was like Argentinian or Venezuelan. And, and every Mexican in the world was like, no, that's not, you might as well have gotten a white guy. Like that's not culturally. You're not actually. Yeah. You you might as well have had Charlton Heston from Touch of Evil. (laughs) Yeah, this guy from Buenos Aires does not know a fucking thing about Mexico and the Mexican Revolution just because he speaks Spanish. That's not, or in that case, Portuguese. Like, it's not, I think it was even a Portuguese speaker. And it's like... The thing is, it's not that they didn't want to do something good. Yeah. It's that they half-assed it. So the lesson is, if you're going to do good, use your whole ass. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other one, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha... Yeah. You know, Japan. Well, at the time they made that movie, every acceptable Asian woman movie star was Japanese or was, excuse me, was Chinese or Malaysian mm-hmm. or from Hong Kong. So that's who's in the movie. There are no Japanese women in Memoirs of a Geisha. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's not find some Japanese ladies. It's it's you know, they exist and they act and it's fine. You know, that's always. And it's easy, I think, for white people to fall into the trap of like, eh, you know, he's a South American guy, right? He's a Latin American guy. It's all the same. It's like, no, if you're trying to be authentic, fine. There are Mex- there are a lot of fine Mexican directors who were available to make Old Gringo. They're really, even though that was before the Inaritu and the Del Toro of it all, there were there were Mexican directors. I swear to God, you know. Um, I just realized I haven't kissed you in over an hour. <laughs> But, you know, it's a, I, the thing I love about that movie is everyone jokes about Heston and Marlena Dietrich. And then you've got the incredible character actor Akim Tamirov using his pretty much unaltered Russian accent. Uh, and he's great. And he's completely believable as the Mexican guy. And he's not trying. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> not even a little. He is, he is Connery in Russia housing his way through, you know. dare. Do we dare talk about Khan? Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. Khan, Mooney, and Singh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, by the way, then what on earth did we do in those movies then? You know, it's like, it's one thing for the Mexican, you know, uh, actor to play the Indian man. Right. Uh, but then, uh, you know, then because, because uh, the Kelvin thing happened, now then he's suddenly a he's a British, British guy. British guy. Yeah. 
Like, I don't understand how that changed him. I don't, it doesn't make sense. Worst. If you worked hard to make sure that you had a black actress as Uhura, and and they and they had a Puerto Rican about an Asian Uhura, but you know, or yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's true too. Yeah, but still, yeah, it's true. They didn't really work that hard. Didn't really. Board, did didn't. But to go with the white British guy, it's yeah, just really like it was a really real tough. Slap in the yeah. face. No, and there, you know, there is something to be said for. You know, Ricardo Montalban was the right guy for the job either, you know. But he's a genius. He's a genius. Yeah, he's the right guy for any job. Let's get that straight. However, you maybe should have changed his name or whatever. Yes, they should have changed it. Here is my retconning of that, is that con is the result of genetic experiments. And clearly, they went pretty heavy on the Mexican when they were mixing that up in the in the text tube. And ended up with an Indian guy who apparently is from, you know, Guadalajara. Ran, so, so mm -hmm. some of the DNA they need, it's like Serpentor and GI. Yeah. Oh, wow. Some of what they needed was on the Kelvin. And yeah. that didn't make it into. Yeah, right. <laughs> it yeah. didn't make any sense because it was. Yeah, no, it's time. that, that yeah. all that. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ended up a little too Mexican because they used too much of Charlton Heston's DNA. Look <laughs> <laughs> what happened. <laughs> Yeah. Oh it's, man. Uh, if if all if head cannon made it so, David. Yeah. Well, you know, the great thing about head cannon and about that version of cannon is it's it's personal. Mm, you know, well, yeah. I'm a I'm yeah. a big Star Trek fan, and I can tell you confidently that Star Trek Generations did not happen. That is, <laughs> that is not, Captain Kirk did not go out like a fucking punk. Didn't happen. Not how he killed died. By scaffolding, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Yes, killed by an 80 year old punk rocker with a piece of scaffolding. That was <laughs> that. That was how and he went out. And it wasn't the one from the bus in Star Trek Four. That's what I'm supposed to. Yeah. Right? Uh, so yeah, I you know I, I think you're 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 free to so interpret crazy. these things as uh, as as best you can. You know, I can't say head cannon is a whole thing though. Like it, when you deal when you deal in the kind of stuff that, you know, I certainly deal in. Um, the kind of IP that I deal in all the time, or at least have, uh, like when we did Masters of the Universe, you know, there was there there's a an entire community of rabid fans, and I mean that in the best way, like really, like just devoted fans, who have been starved of entertainment regarding this hero that they are they they love these heroes that they love. And they've had a few different iterations, but it keeps kind of getting a little bit of a reboot every time. Right. They've had a, a couple of cartoons and some comics, but it's always from a different angle. And they have tried valiantly to piece together some kind of headcanon to make it all make sense. And they've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. And then we come along and we've got our own version of how yeah. it can all work together. We can't possibly make everybody's individual yeah. headcanon come to life. Everybody's and got their own, you know? Mm -hmm. This is this but, is an interesting... I was actually just thinking about this today because I'm writing some... Uh, in in the H.P. Lovecraft thing, I'm, I'm using, you know, his cosmology and his characters and his mythology. Mm -hmm. And it's always fascinating to me when I research this stuff. There is no such thing as continuity. Everyone <laughs> gets it wrong. Everything in the New Testament three sentences later is 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 negated by the next thing that comes along that somebody else says uh bethlehem swapped in for 
Nazareth is literally like the first significant retcon in history. He's Jesus <laughs> of Nazareth, but because the other book says the Messiah has got to be born in Bethlehem, we're going to retcon a way to get him to Bethlehem when he's born, even though it makes no goddamn sense. Doesn't lie with any, doesn't line up with any Roman census that was ever done. Reflects a policy that didn't exist. And like I was writing this thing, one of the Elvira things, I had uh, the Egyptian gods as the monsters, as the villains. I was looking for like an explainer of the pantheon, right? It's different every 50 years in Egyptian <laughs> history. My villain was Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra is called Amun-Ra because, well, there was a god named Amun and Amon, and there was a god named Ra. And when those two tribes got together and the dust settled, they had a new god called Amun-Ra. Yeah. Same dude. Yeah. Little Same bit dude. Of, yeah, and it's, yeah. such a, it's, such a, <laughs> it's such a comic book hand wave of yeah. like, no, 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 no. Amun was always Ra and Ra was always Ra. No, Amun, it's, it's fine. He's a new guy now called. My yeah. point being that, like, every piece of world building you've ever seen in your life, like, when I was a kid, I would read the Lovecraft and I would get frustrated that the rules changed about who Cthulhu was and who Yogg-Sothoth was and where they came from and where they were and what, what allowed them to enter into our. Like, I tried to make it make sense in my head and I'm like, this stuff actually doesn't track <laughs> we, i and, get so many people all the time talking about alan scott and you know things that they are anticipating they don't they haven't even read the story but right. they just expect that things are going to be different and change and always, every time i'm always just thinking do you remember crisis on infinite earths happening yeah. you dc fan you like right i mean how can this you was all fucking a race. whatever happened in the golden age as the absolute standard for the way it must be told going forward that there have been so many changes in retcons to yeah. continuity by the way also, you know why is retcon such a dirty word the you thing know, and the other it thing doesn't is mean what you think it means it everybody just means new information that's all it means yeah. everybody shits on the multiverse idea but this is actually my favorite thing about the multiverse idea you know what the thing that you love totally valid right the thing thing the i found it weirdly moving in the last spider-man movie that that felt it felt like such an act of love honestly to Andrew Garfield to say, no, man, you were really Spider-Man. It, it, it like you, we value you, you, va we value your Spider-Man. You were genuine. We are not forgetting that you, you put in all your time and made these two movies. We're not erasing you. Their movies existed. Yeah. They had fans. You, you, you he's, killed yourself he, making them. He's yeah. got something too. I mean, he and was, you know, he's, he's standing there with the other spider man and man, does he stand out like in terms of you, you connecting with him emotionally yeah. and he's, he's, he's wonderful. He's awesome. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's the yeah. part of the multiverse that I dig is like that thing, that version of star Trek that you like more than all of the other versions. It's good. Yeah. It's a, like right. strange new worlds. I love, but the, there are moments when my continuity alert thing goes off and I say, so wait, the Federation had a war with the Gorn, saw them millions of times, and Captain Kirk is totally surprised by the appearance of a Gorn. Yes. Yeah. Right. He's yeah, never yeah. like ten years later, suddenly everyone's forgotten what a fucking Gorn looks like. Yeah, and well, what yeah Enter Enterprise danced that around that a little bit. Yeah, they, they, little bit they tried really. But the yeah. other part of me goes, <clears throat> let's let let go, man. This is yeah. this is the new reboot. And yeah. that kid, well, the kid that they've got playing Captain Kirk, young Captain Kirk. Yeah. The, fir the first episode with him, I hated him. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, I, 
by his third appearance, I was like, you know, this is a totally valid take on that. This isn't my guy. This isn't. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. So, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Same this thing. He's the guy yeah, from yeah. this corner of the multiverse, and I like him in his own way. And I'm gonna like because to me, the important thing is the essence of the character. Yep. And at yeah. first, I thought they had gotten that wrong. And when they did the the last episode that had Kirk as a guest star, Ahura is having some trouble, and Kirk is the only one that believes her and helps her. And mm -hmm. I went, nailed it. Yeah, Jim Kirk is the guy that doesn't abandon a friend who's going mm -hmm. through a heart. You have found the essence of him, even though this guy has a different take on it and is a different personality and doesn't look a thing like young William Shatner or young Chris Pine. You have yeah. gotten to the heart of he is kind and he is sensitive and he believes people. But you like know? multiverses, I, I used to say and sometimes I still I still feel this way, which is that the multiverse version of trying to make canon, multiple canons make sense, is it's, all right, this is a terrible word for it, but it's a little lazy because it's so easy. It's yeah, so easy, sure. right? So the problem is sometimes it's kind of your, most of the time when it's used, it's your only option to sort yeah. of make everything make yeah. sense. So. When when I what I found was it became a great tool for me when I was promoting the Long Halloween movie, because there you know look when you're adapting a book a 13 issue comic book series into films, it you uh, you will have fans who will say I want a one for one adaptation and they have no idea what that means yeah and it's not it's just not possible yeah. comic books are not movies they're just yeah. not the same thing so. So there change, some change is necessary. And some of it, you get to a point where you're like, well, we just have to make this change because it's better for the kind, the way that we're telling yeah. this story in, in, on, on screen. And so when I went out to promote it, I found that one of my best friends was the ability to say, you know, and truthfully, that this is, it's a great big, beautiful multiverse over here at yeah. DC. And this movie takes place in one corner of the multiverse. And this is how this story plays out in our corner. And the book still plays out the way it plays out in that corner of the multiverse. And they don't cancel each other out. Nothing replaces anything. Yeah. Watch the movie, enjoy it. And hopefully it'll inspire you to go back and read the book again or yeah. read it for the first time. That's, and you'll appreciate it on all other kinds of other levels as well. You know, that's what so multiverse that's, can be very effective and, and useful and can expand canon for us, you know, and, and prior to the multiverse, this is how people told stories anyway. I mean, one of the things when people talk about how much they hate prequels and, you know, it's all these canonical, you know, all of these, you know, it's IP. I always say to them, you know, when an audience sat down to watch Oedipus the King in 5th century Athens, B.C., every single person in that audience knew how that was going to end. Mm -hmm. Everyone. No one went, oh, I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen to this Oedipus guy. They all yeah. knew it. And is it the same as the legend that they heard? No, it's it's a multiverse. It's it's yeah. not exactly the Sophocles is not the same as the Euripides. Like it's everybody gets their own shot at it. The Trojan <laughs> War is it's also how the Bible Agamemnon works. Agamemnon in uh, in the play Agamemnon is not the guy from the Homer novel in in the Homer epic poem. It's a very yeah. different character. Deal with it. You know Odysseus in. Uh, in Troilus and Cressida by Shakespeare 
is a complete douchebag who is not the guy from the Odyssey, who is not even really the guy from the Iliad, if we're really being honest with ourselves. Like, so it's not every legend of Robin Hood contradicts every other legend of Robin Hood. The point is, is this a good Robin Hood story? Yeah. The point isn't which continuity of Batman does Dark Knight Returns come out of? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, is Dark Knight Returns the other end of the road that begins in uh, Batman Year One? Or is he the other end of the road that begins in Detective Comics, number one? Or is mm-hmm. he the other end of the road that begins in, you know, something, uh, you know, uh, Neil Adams and Steve Englehart did mm-hmm. in the 70s? You know, that ain't how it works. We all take the character and we tell our story. And the thing about Strange New Worlds is it it's well done enough that I decided at a per- certain point that like the thing they decided to do with the Gorn, I'm like, this isn't a mistake. These guys have watched Star Trek. They are yeah. familiar with the episode, the arena. They have yeah. just made an affirmative choice that we're in a new timeline where the Gorn they thing to because is, of Pike, you know, yeah. just because of his, his, his role. In, and honestly, all. I think he's going to escape his fate. I I think they've telegraphed that from the start. In fact, yeah. I thought he already had yeah. like in terms of the timeline, but I, I think know. I think he is going to find a way to save the children on the burning starship and not get himself hit with the bear told rays or whatever they are yeah. and and yeah. you know, it's it's literally a thing like, you know, if I just bring a radiation suit to that uh ship christening center ceremony, <laughs> you know, that goes bad, this could work out for everybody. Hey Chris, why are you in a radiation suit? Oh, no reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all cool. Everyone just stay I, calm. I'm not putting the I, helmet on yet. I think we all need more Anson Mount, so here's hoping. Yes, absolutely. Well, we should we should wrap up, but this was a lovely. Oh my god, we could do this forever, couldn't we? Yeah, yes. no, absolutely. And we'll definitely have you on again sometime because yeah. this was great thank fun, you. Tim. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find everything about me on timsheridan.com. There we go. That's the easiest one. <laughs> I do that too. I'm a big believer. It's like, even if the web, if the website has no other purpose, it's at as a landing spot for all of the links. Yeah. That's it. I'm not going to give you my Twitter handle because you know, if I'm lucky, I'll be able to escape that hellscape any minute now. There you go. Are you on the blue sky yet? I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm all over the place, but I can't yeah. remember if we're following each other on there and Ryland, where can the kids find you? Uh, well, I am not really on the blue sky. I think I technically have a blue sky, but I am. Yeah, I think I sent you an invite on the blue sky, as it were. But I am uh, at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. If you're just listening, that is R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just kind of drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. And now I have to spell it for you guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, what's that? I was going to ask, actually. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah I believe I just, I'd never heard it before. There is yeah. a Ryland with an A. I have yeah. seen that spelling many times. It's but. an Irish. That is an Irish surname. Uh, yeah, Ryland, Ryland with an E. Not so much. Uh, but yeah. but but I got it. Um, I'm making it a thing. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, you can go, um, you can get, uh, uh, Banjax and Aberrant and Suicide Jockeys, uh, in fine comic shops everywhere and on Amazon. Uh, you can hit up my backer kit shop. Uh, it's right now it's the jump3.backerkit.com and get copies of the jump and the peacekeepers. Um, you could head over to Kickstarter right now and get, uh, the latest issue of Fa Shang Origins, my Wuxia Kung Fu epic. Um, so yeah, I got all that stuff going on. Otherwise, uh, look for some, look for some movies next year and hopefully 
TV. But uh, nice. yeah, soon. You're so much better I, and more prepared at promoting things. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, TimSheridan.com. Yeah, we we, 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 we we do this same bit every week. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just kind of tired jerks. And, but I am very much like Tim Sheridan. I am just David Avaloni freelance.com because GoDaddy uh, sat on davidavaloni.com. And yeah. wanted me to pay a ridiculous amount of money for it, and I'm like, no, not gonna happen. I, I, just, I just got TimSheridan.com this summer. Oh, finally, wow. after 20 years, nice. I've been trying to get it, I finally yeah. got it at a good price. David Avalon's freelance was on my business card. It yeah. still is on my business cards forever. So, like, I'm yeah. I'm happy to keep using it. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I, I own RylanGrant.com. I also secretly sure. own DavidAvaloni.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm just waiting to get a fair price for it. Yeah. So. Yeah, Waiting for me to be able to afford it. Com too? Were you um, the guy that I was up against all these years? Yeah. <sighs> and, uh, you know, yeah, I talked about uh, Drawing Blood, April 3rd. Mm. I'm very excited about that, coming from Image Comics. And uh, the new Elvira in February. There are some other, there's another Dynamite comic that they haven't announced yet, even though I'm writing the second issue of it right now. And, um, and yeah, also hopefully some movie stuff, but we'll... Uh, We'll talk about that as soon as I can talk about it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again, Tim, for being on the show. And we'll see you all on the next exciting episode. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.